You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. Good afternoon, and welcome from the Sheen Center in New York to the core of our humanity, a conversation about the theme of this year's encounter. A special thanks to En Route Foundation for helping to organize this event. I'm Susan Fields, and on behalf of the New York Encounter, I am honored to introduce Professor Paolo Carozza, who will join us online and will interview our very special guest, Professor Charles Taylor. Paolo Carozza is the director of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies and professor of law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. With expertise in comparative constitutional law, human rights, law and development, and international law, he focuses his research on Latin America, Western Europe, and international themes more broadly. Charles Taylor is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Philosophy at McGill University and one of the most influential thinkers within contemporary culture. He has authored many books, including Sources of the Self, The Ethics of Authenticity, and A Secular Age. He has received many honors, including the Templeton Prize, the Ratzinger Prize, and a membership in the Order of Canada. You can find their full bios on our website, newyorkencounter.org. Professor Carozza. Thank you very much, Susan. And uh, Charles, welcome to the New York Encounter. It's a, it's a real privilege for us to have you here for this dialogue and uh, for me personally to be able to engage you in a conversation about the theme of the New York Encounter. A as you've seen, the Encounter this year looks at the year 2020 as one, frankly, of crisis, crisis in the original sense of that word, as a moment of decision or, or a decisive turning point, and asks us, what is in it that we need to embrace and hold on to? Um, and, and that question, I believe, puts us squarely in front of your life's work. Um, I can say that over the decades that so many of us have followed you through your writings, one of the most compelling things that we've found there is your capacity to embrace with great openness and without fear, many of the central features of the reality that we're living in modern times, whether it's secularism or the emphasis on self and authenticity and identity or the pluralism of our societies, for example. You've seen in them possibilities for beauty and goodness and for a growth of our humanity and not simply something to withdraw from. So with that spirit in mind uh, for the encounter, um, I thought maybe we would begin with one thing that has been really a lifelong theme uh, of your work, and that is the integral relationship between community and the individual or individual identity, um, belonging as a condition of freedom and flourishing rather than as a limitation or contradiction of the self. And I can't help but notice that in these months of COVID pandemic, uh, with respect to the way that we've lived community, there seems to be a sort of paradox uh, around us in some ways, maybe we've never in our lifetimes experienced so concretely an awareness of our interdependence with one another, uh, who our, our, our neighbors are and who the essential workers are that surround us. 
at the same time, we've witnessed a degree of lived forms of severe social isolation, the absence of bonds and absence of forms of communal living, of education, of worship, um, that have very stark and brutal consequences on our day-to-day -day life, uh, from the education of the young to uh, economic well-being and mental health. So what do you make of this paradox, looking at this relationship of ourselves to the community that we live in, and how should we understand the effects and meaning of the pandemic and, and its aftermath with respect to our life together in community? Well, I mean, the, the lessons of it are that there's some things really wrong with our society that we managed to ignore. And we had a society much more, I mean, partly this is to do with, with politics and a certain kind of politics of, of laissez-faire or neoliberalism, but we had a society which was much more concerned with increasing production, increasing production of goods for individual use, right, at the expense of the creating the conditions for living together in, in health care, in education, in the whole, you know, in the care of the elderly and so on. So that this kind of totally wrong, these wrong priorities were revealed in a catastrophic and dramatic way by the pandemic, where the deaths occurred were in the areas where <clears throat> there was great inequality or where there were inadequate health care provision, inadequate provision for the old, and so on. It was a real wake-up call. And, you know, on one level, we, in general, reacted with a real sense of solidarity. I remember at the beginning, in a number of countries, people would go out in the streets and sing songs to the healthcare workers and express great gratitude and so on. But it's also been, as you say, terribly trying for some people, just awful. Uh, I mean, economically, in terms of their life, uh, you know, getting the means for life, but also in terms of their relationship to their family and so on. And so there's been this struggle between maintaining the sense of solidarity and breaking out of the of the disciplines, uh, you know, in various other ways, which, because one can't really stand it. But I think talking about your country, the United States, but not only, there's a way in which that solidarity side really, I think, um, in a certain way became extremely important and continued to be. And I'm thinking of the tremendous movement around the death of the murder of George Floyd, which is an extraordinary movement because, of course, Black Lives Matter reacted and quite rightly uh, to that. But it's also a moment when people felt a need to liberate themselves from all sorts of exclusions and inequalities and discriminations. And this is even more remarkable, not just in the United States, but I would say throughout much of the world. So what it, there was an outburst of real sense of solidarity um, many, many months into the terrible pandemic, right? but, but nevertheless, still still there. So that I think that that reaction may be something that we can carry through the whole thing and re-enter so-called normal life with a quite different attitude. Yes, thank you. Well, uh, some of that, that expression of solidarity uh, that we've seen in recent times, not just through the pandemic, but one could say in the last few years in a marked way increasing, um, might also be characterized as uh, a certain form of collectivism that you've been critical of. Uh, also uh, of tribes and 
um, the polarization of our political life into uh, expressions of nationalistic exclusion, for example, or reducing, yeah. you know, the, the determinants of who we are solely to questions of race or ethnicity or, or sexuality. So how do we keep the, the balance um, between this um, relationship of the self and the community and, and, it, and the appreciation for, for freedom that modernity has given us and that you've celebrated in your work um, and, yeah. and not reducing you know, the question of our humanity to the, simply to the tribes and groups that we belong to? How can we take both belonging and self seriously? Well, I think because one of the really important institutions, if you want to call it that, or communities or action together, which does uh, dominate our scene is the, is the creation and you know, sustaining of democratic citizen republics, if you like. And they demand a certain ethic, which if you follow it, really leads to kinds of, if you like, uh, fulfillment and new creations for human beings, which have been always there in, in potential history, which are now being brought out and made made real. I mean, really working in good faith with other people to decide things together with a sense that what we're looking at is the common good, not just my good, but the common good. If you can rise to that, you liberate yourself from a totally narrow focus on your own advantage, on your own particular narrow gang, and you something emerges, which is, uh, I think, a tremendously important human development. So it's it's that. And I think that's what everybody sees in these battles over over the identity of, of political societies throughout the, I was going to say Western world, but not only the Western world, right? That uh, on one hand, there are people who have appealed to some of these narrow uh, identities against others. And that's, it's really uh, an appeal of what Nietzsche called ressentiment, I mean, of resentment, you might say. And on the other side is an appeal to rise to the occasion of being able to work with others in an open way of, we're characterized by mutual concern and listening to the other and so on, which really liberates something in us. And um, it liberates our capacity to listen to others, our capacity to work with others, our capacity to create something together, which is really morally admirable. And I think in, in that sense, we're, that's why I think the, there's going to be some continued consequences from our reaction to this pandemic, because this issue, uh, do we have the capacity to, to create the kind of solidarity which can really work for the common good, or are we going to be locked into our little, our uh, mutual distrust and mutual contempt? And this, I'm speaking at this point to both sides, right? Because, you know, I'm very much on the so-called liberal side, obviously. And I mean, I'm horrified by the Trump presidency and so relieved that it's over and so on. But I, I can't help thinking that a lot of people on, as it were, our side just talked about these yokels, narrow, uh, illiberal, ignorant people and so on, without any attempt to understand what they were actually living, what their ambitions were, what the the human side of their lives was. And so this is a challenge to us as well as to them to reach out and have a capacity to understand what's really going on in our 
really the people that we most must collaborate closely with, our fellow citizens. Mm -hmm. So if the social bonds that you mention and that kind of uh, sympathy and awareness of our fellow citizens is so essential to um, shoring up uh, democracy and uh, uh, especially in a, in a, in a pluralistic uh, society, which you've thought about so much, how do we, how do we generate and maintain those social bonds in particular, given some of the um, trends that we've seen towards, um, uh, let's say, emotivism, scapegoating, uh, a, a sort of collective mob mentality um, that's fed certainly by social media as well. Uh, how, how can we respond to that and still construct uh, a sense of solidarity and belonging to one another that you see as so essential? Well, I think there are two sides to the, the, the path beyond that to something richer. Number one, which is kind of obvious, is that there are all sorts of even common interests which bring together objectively people on both sides of this divide. If you take, again, U.S. politics, a lot of the people in the Midwest that voted for Trump because they live in Rust Belts, they're looking for new jobs, new development, and so on, and we're not going to get that from Trump. Right? So, but I, I can understand how, having made the mistake, they threw themselves into it. So there's a way in which you can reach out on the pure basis of, listen, we have a very important common interest here. We have to, we want to reconstruct uh, America in a way which will deal with global warming. That's going to mean a sort of stimulus and, and investment and we can create jobs, etc. That's one level. On the other level, the level where you have to liberate someone from their deep investment in contempt and difference from the other, there is a much more powerful common interest which, but at a very, very deep level, that these stances in life are really crush something in us which could possibly be immensely creative. This is what I found just wonderful by the, the leadership you've had in the United States of the, of the African-American movement from Martin Luther King to John Lewis. John Lewis kept saying this wonderful thing, put down the burden of hatred. Hatred is a, a burden, it's dragging you down, right? it's dragging you into a narrow little cell where you can't really, certain side of you can't flourish. And so on another very deep level, there's a very profound common interest in both sides, getting out of their, their definition of themselves purely in opposition to someone else, right? Whether it's liberals thinking these yokels out there or people in the <laughs> Midwest thinking these, what is it, latte-sipping Eastern liberals and so on. <laughs> this here, there's something funny about this ridiculous business, but there's something also tragic. And, and it's the, uh, the, there's a real liberation to be had. And that's what I find remarkable about some of those demonstrations after George Floyd, that you've got all these young people, they sensed that there was something self-liberating in this, right? together with others. And uh, it's that very deep insight, which you know, not everybody in politics has, but people like Gandhi and King and so on really lived by. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. 
The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting to me how much that connects quite directly to even the title that the New York Encounter has taken on this year about reality striking us when reality hits, right? Because oh. um, your description sounds to me like saying, in a certain sense, um, uh, those uh, sort of ways of thinking that are ingrained in us that separate us from others uh, can be broken down by a relationship with the reality as it strikes us, right? Whether it's a, 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 an event like the death of George Floyd or simply getting to know someone else, the encounter with another person, things that draw us out of ourselves. Yeah, um, exactly. But if so, then that, that leads me then to a, a, another question, which is also you know occupied so much of your work. And that's the question of, in, you know, how human beings, and especially um, sort of the self as it's conceived in modernity, is uh, a being that is um, interpreting of itself, right? Uh, human beings as self-interpreting animals is how you've described that. And uh, I, I think some of us might hear that and think, well, that's a recipe for uh, subjectivity and isolation because it just closes us in on ourselves if we're only uh, if we're interpreting ourselves without any relationship to the reality outside of us. So in light of what you just said about sort of an encounter with reality drawing us out, how does that fit with your understanding of human beings as essentially constituted by their capacity to interpret meaning themselves? Well, I mean, it's, it's on two levels, because I mean, one reason to talk about self-interpreting animals is, is just look at history or politics and you see how very different cultures uh, have a very different way of realizing the human potential. So in some way, although there hasn't been a conscious act of interpretation here, the interpretations have arisen in history of what it is to be human and so on. And then we have to have anthropology and sociology and so on to help us understand from very different people. But I think what you're referring to more specifically is the development of a modern modern forms of individualism in which people are called upon to discover their own, if you like, their own vocation, what they really can do, what is specific to themselves. Mm. And this is not necessarily a recipe for enclosing yourself in your own references. I mean, in two ways. In one, one way, you never work it out with yourself without dialogue or exchange with others, can be close others, can be more distant others. But also, if you are still in contact with reality, you discover that, you know, your way of being, your vocation, is something which involves relating to others in, in all sorts of different ways. And, uh, you know, the doctor who's been very successful made a lot of money but then decides this is not enough in life of this so he goes to Médecins Sans Frontières or the Doctor of the Borders. Well this is a person discovering him herself or himself, right? That's what they're doing. They're it's a it's a classic example of of 
the ethic of of authenticity. What am I really in in this world for? What do I want to do? But it's absolutely the opposite of self-absorption. Because you're going to go out to some very foreign country and meet a very different culture and learn really to serve these people. And it's it drives you outward. Um, See, so there's no necessary connection. Now, this all can turn. People can deny that kind of reality, deny those kind of needs and getting close to themselves. And that's what we've seen a lot of in our society, which has sort of supposedly based on a kind of meritocracy and appeals to you to develop yourselves in the individual and looks on people who aren't successful as it's all their fault because they haven't been working. It's on that kind of, I think, very bad ideology, which really self-delusive ideology because people who are successful never did it all themselves, you know. uh, But um, so it can turn that way, but it's not, as it were, the consequence of the ethic of authenticity. It's a consequence of of very false choices in the dimension of authenticity. Yeah. So that, um, that's that's fascinating. Thank you. I I, I see that that way of looking at how we live the ethics of authenticity um, dovetails really very well into, you know, what has been some of the most influential and magisterial work that you've done for us, uh, which is thinking about the, the meaning and implications of secularism and the secular yeah. age, right? Um, the way, in other words, that given what you just said, that the secularism, um, the, the secular age in which we're living in, in important ways opens us up to new possibilities uh, rather than being something that um, we need to react to, least of all out of a certain fear or, or withdrawal. It's, but, but rather it's an opportunity in the way that, for example, um, you know, it, it has interrupted certain very contingently, uh, culturally contingent forms of religion that might have become ossified over times and, and rigid or uh, the way that it's brought us uh, those of us who are Christians, at least, you know, uh, uh, back to um, an appreciation for the nature of Christianity, uh, essentially as an event and not as an ethical construct or a political project or a set of norms or a set of pieties. Um, and, uh, and and that, that kind of openness to the, the secular age has been something that has, I think, for, for many of us from the time that we um, uh, read your, your book, uh, has been very inspiring in terms of relating to the world. Now, that was written, you know, a, a, a long enough time ago now that we've seen in the years since then um, a continued very sharp rise in secularism, uh, not only in the United States, but in particular here, and, and arguably also a variety of, um, shall we call them, social pathologies that are associated with the absence of a belief in anything transcendent. So, you know, the increasingly triumph, uh, increasing triumph of technocracy, uh, of a certain, you know, very um, false kind of meritocracy that you were referring to earlier. Um, Things like uh, Pope Francis, what Pope Francis refers to as the throwaway culture or the globalization of indifference are are, are arguably all sort of um, manifestations of an increasingly um, not only expansive, but, but, but sharp and uncompromising secular world. So, I mean, it leads me to wonder how you've thought about the, the, the movements toward um, uh, an, an, 
a secular environment in the years since you wrote that book. And do you think about it any differently today than, than you did then? No, I mean, it's the same, only more so. I mean, it seems to me clear that there is a kind of moral evolution going on in history. I, theologically, I would talk about something like St. Irenaeus's idea that God is exercising a certain pedagogy in history, right? And, and I think you can point right back to the axial period as an example of that, where in quite different civilizations out of contact with each other, the idea of the universal becomes central. Well, I think that's something that has been going on. Going, I mean, let me give you one striking fact that we all know, but we haven't really thought of. For centuries, Christians and Stoics and a lot of other people thought that, well, slavery is really a rather uncomfortable thing, but we, you know, it's part of the world, it's part of the reality. So the injunction was to, you know, treat your slaves humanely, uh, recognize, Paul says, recognize them as fellow Christian and so on. In the 18th century, we arrive at a moment in which tremendously powerful movements arise saying, no, this is just not acceptable, abolitionism. Uh, now, people talk about the enlightenment, a lot of secular people talk about the enlightenment, and <clears throat> by which they mean some kind of very secularized enlightenment thinking purity. But of course, that movement was, uh, in the English-speaking world, it was evangelicals that were, that were really exercised by that. And I'm not exclusive if you look over the whole of Europe, but the real driving force of abolitionism in the States, for instance, was a certain kind of, of um, really Protestant theology, right? So uh, we're talking about something, this kind of thing, where does it come from? I mean, why has it come about, right? Is it simply because people rationally thought, you know, we're thinking all humans are, are human, so, Oh gee, there's a entailment of that. <laughs> no, no, no. That's you know that was that was just as easily possible to draw the conclusion before, but something is happening in history, and and this is something we have to look at as part of a total pattern of change, which includes other things like uh, another extraordinary thing about our lives today, as against 500 years ago, is we have this incredible sense of control mm. and a reality of control over our kind of society. Just think of the organization that we're now trying to put up to, uh, you know, vaccinate everyone, put and make people obey rules and so on. That kind of control didn't exist earlier. Not to talk about the control over external nature. And we're about to do something catastrophically dangerous because of that, right? So that's, that's part of it. And that's also part of a climate in which earlier kinds of Relations to religion and spirituality, which thought of God as micromanaging the world and getting mad if we don't do the right things and bringing on, right, has just disappeared from the scene. So uh, put all this together and you're in a quite new situation where you have to, as it were, develop your spiritual sensibility to get an orientation of what's going on. And so you get these remarkable people that, you know, I'm seeing John Maine who introduced Christian meditation, which I follow, but I mean, a lot of others as well. New ways of acting, uh, of bringing the spirit into the world again, making it active and alive. And, you know, we have no choice. That's the way forward. You can't possibly get back to what existed before. Right? It's really, the mold is broken. 
So instead of sitting around and saying, oh, it's terrible, we're losing all these things, <laughs> we have to hang on as much as we can, uh, we need this kind of action of, you know, like spiritual exploration, spiritual discovery. Yeah. And reading the gospel anew, finding new, uh, you know, new I mean, in, uh, Francis is a great example of that. But he said that the church is not a kind of huge organized society, it's a field hospital. That's a really striking image, right? A really striking image. You couldn't have, I mean, you know, imagine convincing Innocent the Third or the, all these guys in the Middle Ages. It's a field hospital. What do you mean? I mean you know, right. Or P.O. No, no. I mean, the, <laughs> yeah. Well, that opens up so many other questions, Charles. I, I mean, so I'll, let me go to, to one end, maybe the most intimate end of the things that first come to mind to me, uh, to me and that is to speak as a parent, um, as well as an, as, as an educator, right, a lifelong educator. Um, in the environment that you describe, what, what is, um, what do those of us who are educators of our children and our students um, need to do uh, to equip young people to live in that world that you describe in a way that is still authentic and open to the transcendent and generative of new form of the new forms of life that you're calling us to. Well, how do we transmit that? Well, you make available as much as you can to your students or your kids. You make available as much as you can examples you know of this really creative exploration of these new departures and so on and hope that something catches on. And yeah. uh, as against presenting the faith that here are a set of rules and you know, don't step outside them and uh, terrible consequences will occur, uh, which for a lot of people just dead, uh, you know, dead woods. Uh, you, on the contrary, can, as an educator, the most wonderful thing you can do is communicate. And the most wonderful thing I've had in my education is people who can communicate. I had a in the undergraduate, I did a history, and then, but I needed, a, you know, some electives. So I looked around. There was a comparative religion. That's interesting. So I went to this guy, and it turned out to be Wilfred Campbell Smith, who is later the founder of the of the Islamic Institute at McGill and then at Harvard and so right. And I, this man, walked up and down with a gown, and he made real for us what it would be like to be belong to these other religious faith, mainly Islam, because that was what he knew, but Buddhism and so on. And you know, I was just absolutely carried away. This is a way of living in the world, a way of being, he was a Christian, you know, a way of exercising spirituality in the world, which would just take us in a completely different direction. Right? You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Yeah. You've, uh, I mean, in, in, in describing that before, I've noticed uh, in, in, in reading how you've described that before, I've noticed that you have um, simultaneously emphasized the central importance of 
uh, interreligious encounters and dialogue, as you just did right now in your comments. And yet, at the same time, you've been very clear to say that doesn't mean a syncretism. That doesn't mean a lack of distinctiveness among the religions and in, in what each one is bringing into the world. Could you explain that a little bit, how those two things fit together for you and how we should think about that relationship? Yeah. I mean, if you think of religion simply as a set of propositions, then obviously the ones of Buddhism and the ones of Christianity, they don't, they don't mesh, right? But if you think of a, a faith as a path or an ensemble of possible paths of spiritual development, then you can't just have something which is a kind of mix. I, I mean, the, the Dalai Lama said it wonderfully at a meeting I was at once. He said, you can't put a sheep's head on a yak's body. <laughs> if, if you're a Christian, how are you trying to go further along in this faith? By kind of prayer, my case, kind of meditation, which is like prayer, in which you're trying to reach that extraordinary love of God through Christ and the way it can transform you and pass on. It's not the same kind of thing as if you're a Buddhist and or the same kind of thing as, if, you know, you go on to all these others. So there is, you've got to, or maybe you could make some kind of mix, maybe of, of some of them, that's possible, you know, but there isn't just, it isn't just a potpourri. It's just you can't put all these things together as a path. But you can find in people on the other paths, and Muslim, Buddhist, and so on, people who are really striving in sort of the same direction, with even great overlap in how they want to realize things in the world. And this is where my political experience has been tremendously important for me, because I discovered myself in coalitions trying to realize something in which here's an atheist, there's a Muslim, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we are, in far as the things of this world are concerned, we're really very closely aligned. We're aligned. We're working together. And a great respect grows from that. But it, it can't produce a kind of empty syncretism in which, you know, you try to put together this kind of prayer and not prayer at all. And so on. it just doesn't work. The, the paths are different. And you have to be in one but you can really respect people in others. And, and that's what I got from Will Smith, actually. It's very deeply satisfying thing to develop friendships whereby you learn what makes them, what moves them. And I know it's very hard to explain to people who are locked in the, looking at us as a set of propositions. And do you accept this theological world? <laughs> right. That's right. that's not the way you become a saint, accepting <laughs> right? yeah. theological positions, right? Yeah. Does this 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 uh, this reference that you make to repeatedly to traveling a path or having a, a journey of growth and an itinerary? Oh. Um, you, you know, you you mentioned it now in a way that refers primarily to an individual's path. Does the same no. apply to us at a communal level as? As, as Christians or as Americans or it, what is the social dimension of that itinerary and, and how, does, how does that get expressed? Well, in, in terms of Christians, in terms of Catholics, you, you need a parish, you need I mean, a community that you can, and sometimes that's very difficult to find. And, and what you do find sociologically, this is again a kind of reality check, what you find sociologically in the Catholic Church 
is a concatenation of affinity parishes mm. where the lack of affinity between <laughs> some and, the, and others is very, very marked, alas. But people are looking for a parish in which their understanding of, of what the Christian path is, is going to be, can be shared and sacramentally shared with, with others, right? Then if you get to the broader scheme of things where we're all citizens together, then the common goals are, I mean, political, social, things of that kind, right? But then if you're a really living faith, ought to motivate you to <laughs> enter into some of these general uh, objectives, right? And, and work as loyal fellow members of the party or members of the movement or whatever, or members of the, you know, organization which is creating some kind of, meeting some kind of need, etc. But, uh, <clears throat> so there is a kind of sociability connected to both the path that you're on and the kind of world that you, being on that path makes you want to create around you. <clears throat> yeah. I'm sure that many of us have felt in this year, again, of, of crisis, of change, of uh, upheavals, that, um, that the disruptions that we've, that we've witnessed around us and are, and are experiencing in our own lives um, have a feeling of being uh, a, a, an inflection point socially and historically. Um, you know, you, you've used the term social imaginaries to talk about uh, the way that there's a, a, the, the interrelationship of values and institutions and laws and symbols by which we live and imagine the social whole. Do you, do you think it's, uh, it's right to have an, you know, an intuition right now that we are witnessing a historical moment where there may be a new social imaginary emerging out of these disruptions? Yeah, I think so. But I think I want to uh, put a modification in that. Because if you look at this history, from one point of view that I was talking about earlier, it's a kind of movement forward, like that famous moment in the 18th century when people decided to abolish slavery. But each one of these moves forward has produced, not, not really exactly counter movements, has produced deviant forms that are sometimes more horrible than anything else. I mean, you know, uh, even Genghis Khan didn't have something as terrible as the Holocaust, or I would say Xi Jinping's uh, sort of attempt to make over the minds of all those Uyghurs in the kind of torture camps there. So there are, but these are just extreme cases, right? But there are less flamboyant cases of evil or, or wrongdoing or, uh, so we find ourselves in a kind of situation of struggle where it's not that we arrive at a plateau. <gasps> okay, there we are. That's, that's fine. That's, that's perfectly okay. Let's go to the next level. I think this is one of the terrible mistakes we make in the democratic world. We repeatedly believe that 1918, we made the words world safer democracy. So uh, <laughs> then along comes Mussolini and then we crash them and we made the world safer democracy and along comes a whole issue of decolonization and then uh, and then we have in 1989 oh no we've made the world safer democracy I don't know. and that's a terrible illusion that these you know that the not it's not the only lesson you can draw from this whole history it's not the only way of feeling liberated from this history to build a really open and loyal democracy. And you see in Eastern Europe today, in Poland, you know, the, 
I'm very close to for a variety of reasons. We get we get the kind of people who are in continuity with Solidarność and with what John Paul was for on one hand, and we get the present government of Poland, which has regressed to extremely narrow kind of um, ethnic Polish nationalism. You know, the Poles have these two great models in their history, the great Commonwealth of Lithuania and Poland, which was in the 17th century, the most open and free society in terms of religious difference, and the narrow nationalism that arose understandably under the partition and controlled by Russia and so on. And see these, so these two are, are still fighting it out. And there isn't anything, there isn't any moment when you really say, oh, so that's it. And we, we've got to the plateau and <laughs> there's not nowhere to go but further up. And so on. that's not the way it works. <laughs> Right, it's a triumphalistic vision of the end of history, or is 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 really... no, the end of history? That was poor. That's poor guy. Uh, my name, at my age, I keep forgetting names. But uh, Fukuyama, right? Right. Uh, right. Yeah. I was going uh, to I'm ask sure. you, uh, you know, what what role you thought um, Christianity in particular has to play in this, uh, you know, transition to. And, and always new form of a social imaginary. But I, I, maybe I, I'll, I'll sharpen the question a little bit in light of what you just said. I mean, um, it's, it, I wonder whether at least one of the things that we Christians have to contribute in this era um, is precisely the awareness of the fragility of human uh, affairs and the need always to return to the beginnings of things, the the sources of things. You you've beautifully always emphasized we have to go back to the sources. We have to go back to the sources. We have to go back to the sources. So uh, would you? I mean, what would you? What would you make of that? Is is um, what is the role of Christianity in this time, and what does it have to do with the need in general to? return to the sources, to avoid triumphalism, to avoid a sense that history is over, but always in progress, always becoming. Yeah. Well, I think that you just have to be a little bit self-critical. You have to be able to see the deviations as they're arising, but also you have to be able to recognize that these sources, these very deep sources, for us, I mean, one of them is the New Testament, right? That this life of this man in you know, the Palestine of that time uh, can be drawn on for all sorts of things. But if you see our situation aright, suddenly other things jump out at you. I mean, what, what jumps out at me, for instance, uh, from the New Testament account, is how this man is constantly learning. He's constantly seeing individuals who are different from the models that have been Given, you know, I've never seen such faith in Israel or, you know, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and so on. That kind of of ability to be open and to look at what people are, even be surprised by it, and to respond to it, that is really what we need today. To in spades, as I'm saying, this kind of society can only create that solidarity if you have this ability to reach out and look out and, and see what's there. So here you have a way of living in democracy. And I think, you know, King is a wonderful example, and John Lewis, they, they were inspired by Christian faith and all this. So you have a way of living in the society 
which, which draws on these very deepest, oldest, 2,000-year-old sources, but draws something else out of them than, let's say, 100, 200 years ago, people were, were drawing out of them. And, and so there's a sense of you, a perception of what's going wrong today and going back and you get immediately a perception of what is there that addresses that, which was not necessarily uh, emphasized by previous preachers, theologians, bishops, and so on. And this is going to go on for as long as the you know human race goes on. Yeah, that certainly was the impulse of early Christianity, right? I, I think uh, from the you know from the gospel examples that you that you mentioned to think about how uh, Saint Paul and his and his travels to uh, in, encounter such different uh, cultures and try to to dialogue with them on the basis of what was most essentially human, right? Uh, yeah. is, that, is that the model for what we need to do today as Christians as well? Something like that? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's that kind of, but realize that we can't just repeat the, you know, the, the letters of Paul, that, uh, <clears throat> that it requires a, also a real insight into what's going wrong today. You have to have these two, and they have to somehow come together yeah. in your... Yeah, thank you. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. One of the other things that perhaps Christianity uh, distinctively has uh, on offer, let's say, in um, a world that is dominated by an imminent frame, as you put it, um, is uh, the sense of uh, what you might call the sacramentality of reality, right? That reality has uh, within it um, um, uh, a certain kind of um, meaning um, that is beyond uh, what what we can put into it by ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and this, this sort of tangible engagement with all things that are real around us um, brings to me uh, to mind a, a question about um, your references in a number of, of uh, your, your discussions about your own work to um, an incarnated view of the human person, um, mm-hmm. and you know, in, in incarnation, and contrasted that with what you called excarnation. Um, for you know, for purposes of our audience, I just you know, one quote that really struck me is you said, "My whole philosophical work really was trying to understand human beings as embodied beings." Um, mm-hmm. That's really intriguing for us, I think, and and maybe something that we need to dive deeper into. Um, in, in as Christians. So could you tell us a little bit more, break open for us, what do you mean by yeah. that contrast between incarnation and excarnation? And, and where does it fit into yeah. our reading and our judgment on what's going on around us today in the world? Well, I think I start off with what uh, sparked that remark, and that is that our moral explorations, our moral positions, our moral insights are often conceived as the result of reason in a rather narrow sense. That you know, the, the finding out the results of science, being logical and consistent, 
so we have, I mean, thinkers like Jürgen Habermas, that I immensely admire and, and uh, have enjoyed working with, but their idea is it's very, very simple. You just contradict yourself if you arrogate something to yourself and don't, don't, as it were, open it for the other. And so that that is the road to... Now, this I call excarnate because this is a kind of reasoning, mathematical and logic, which is maximally trying to push our gut feelings and emotions to the side because they're disturbing factors, right? I, I can't see that you're a human being like me and that you have the same rights because I don't like you, because you're against me, because you're authority or whatever. But on the contrary, I think this is just not how it works, that what we have are these very powerful, deep gut feelings. I mean, think of this whole point about the universality. I mean, listen to the ninth, fourth movement of the ninth symphony of Beethoven. You don't feel, hey, that's logical. No, you, you were deeply moved by it. And what that requires, another kind of reason, a kind of reason in which you start off from these very powerful feelings and try to make sense of them and discuss with others and see what, what does make sense and what doesn't, a kind of hermeneutical work is use this bit of philosophical jargon, right? And if you go back to the gospel, what it talks about is Greek verse, like it means feeling in your gut. He felt pity, he said, would say the translation for compassion, but it's a word derived from your bowels, your, your gut, right? So that is the, you see there is someone who is moved, not simply by that part of the reasoning process which maximally must distance itself from gut feeling. On the contrary, it's a gut feeling which limpidly can find its proper outlet, its proper consequences in action. So it's this, the whole human being has all this range of feelings and intuitions and so on. And that's what we need to draw on to be real, good, fulfilled, you know, proper human beings. Yeah. So um, that brings to mind what a, what, how misunderstood we, we might say um, the, the 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 meaning of human desire is uh, around mm -hmm. us. I mean, on the one hand, you know, we have uh, a, a, a culture that in its sort of um, eagerness to hawk the latest iPhone to us uh, plays no. on a, a, a kind of, um, you know, diminution of human desires to just play things and, and small satisfactions. And on the other hand, we have a certain kind of appeal to um, uh, to to the desires for belonging and so forth that you were referring to before that then get expressed in ways that can be quite frightening, right? In forms of nationalism, forms of exclusion, forms of hatred. Um, so uh, there's there's um, if, if we see around us this reduction of desire or this corruption of desire. Um, and what you seem to be saying is the, the real fulfillment of the human being, right? This incarnated embodied fulfillment depends on taking seriously, uh, really truly what human beings desire uh, at, at their core, at, their, at the level of their, their gut, as you put it. Um, how, do we, how do we do that? How do we cultivate that? How do we 
um, hold on to a sense of this desire that truly belongs to an embodied human being, as opposed to its more corrupted or reduced forms that are inculcated on us and on our and on our young people every day. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have to liberate in ourselves these very deep desires which are moving towards the good. Now, there are examples of perfectly incarnate, not excarnate at all, desires like, you know, Hitler's fascism. It's appealing to something in us which is very much comes from the body and a sense of dominating and being excited by being in the crowd, you know. And so it, it's something terrible. So that it, 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 incarnation or non-excarnation is not the only condition, right? But how do you defeat that? How do you defeat that Hitlerian? Or how do you defeat any one of our very divisive uh, goals that are alive in our politics today? You appeal to it, you, you overcome it by appealing to something else in people. And talking about John Lewis earlier in King, right? Appealing to the what is crying to come out in them the power to create something really great and beautiful with other people, because you're working together, realizing the real common needs in mutual respect. It's a kind of wonderful liberation there from the earlier cramping uh, uh, forms of, uh, of exclusion. So it's not the only condition. And if you, the only way you can stop the fascist movement is by reading Habermas. I'm all for reading Habermas, right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But, and he's done a bit of stopping of the wrong kind of stuff. So I've, I greatly admire his work in, in Germany. But if you want to see how to move even beyond that, you have to discover these deep potentialities in human beings which reveal themselves first and foremost, in these very deep gut feelings, and which then needs to be interpreted, brought out, criticized, maybe connected to others. There's a whole lot of work of the intellect has to go on here. Yeah. But that is what that is where the, the deepest ambitions of humanity in us reside, are yeah. discovered. So you, you've spent, uh, and you've referred, in, even in our conversation today, to the importance of your engagement in politics. And your, your description of this sort of education of desire seems to me extremely relevant to, uh, to our political life. You were talking about sort of serving with others, constructing something that's for the common good. Um, what, what is it meant to you personally uh, to be both a philosopher, but also someone who's continued beyond academics to be engaged in politics throughout your entire life? What, what has been the relationship for you of the, the life of the mind and this engagement in the construction of the common good? How would you describe that? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I don't know how to describe the beginning point of it. I just have always been very interested in politics, very exercised by politics, very concerned with what's going wrong. So I, there's some side of me which just can't stay on the sidelines, right? But then, that, that being said, there's a conflict because the more time you spend in the study, the more stuff you can write, and the more time you spend out there in the hustings, the less time you spend in the study, right? There's been that kind of conflict. But I found that there's been a marvelous complicity on another level because you won't really understand why you're doing this. You want to understand how you can convince people who are doing politics of the wrong kind that it's the wrong kind, and so on. And you're thrown back on reflections of the kind we've been 
we've been exchanging and kicking around here. So except for the all important issue, how much time you have to devote to this and that, right? And, this, and you're always short of time, both to do the best, you know, the best political campaigns and the best uh, working out the ideas. That being set aside, and that's a big, big thing to set aside, there is a marvelous complementarity involved in you know, trying to understand why am I proposing this? Why is this a good idea? Why is it worth fighting for this? That's, uh, I mean, you, you, you're, you're appealing to politics uh, implicitly as a realm in which we seek and give reasons for what we do, uh, reasons mm -hmm. to ourselves, and then uh, reasons uh, to persuade others, right, um, of, of the merits of, of something. Um, I, you know, we have to be sort of realistic and say the, the politics of the world around us in our countries these days doesn't seem to be very conducive to that kind of exchange of reason uh, that, you, that you seem to be pointing to in it. Um, and in fact, you know, we, we can even be more blunt and say uh, a lot of us see the world of politics as uh, having been uh, reduced entirely to the realm of conflict and ideology and self-interest and, uh, and even mendacity uh, has reached levels that, that, you know, in our lifetimes we've not known before. So um, is it, do you think it's, it's, re it's realistic for us to think of politics becoming again this locus of reason and dialogue that you're appealing to? How, how would we recapture that and, and get there? Well, once again, I'm not proposing, hoping that we're going to have the total flip over so it'll be the perfect of system. Course. But you can see various ways in which, various reasons for, uh, for why our political life, political world, political structures have become terribly opaque to people. And their opacity is what allows various merchants of, you know, totally phony solutions like Trump to make great headway and people can be sucked into following them. And there are several elements to this. One is our information system. You know, we seem to be living in silos with people looking at Fox News and other people looking at CNN and MSNBC. Uh, and we seem to be living in another kind of division where people get exclusively from social media, completely false information, right? So there are two, two ways of moving from here to closer to there, not totally there. One is, of course, to improve political organization. And above all, the more we can have real political organization at the local level, that's where people get together, they meet their neighbors, they realize we need this, that, or the other, they learn to trust each other, and they know what they want, and they know what levers to pull, you know, in state and federal government. So that's a very important part of it. I've, a couple of colleagues have written a book on that recently, actually. And the other is more large-scale mobilizations, which you've seen in the States in 2018, etc. But that, that leaves unsolved or unchanged the, the information split into, and there it's much more, much more complex. But I think there are gonna be ways of um, punishing real, uh, you know, high level mendacity. I mean, it's very interesting to me that, that um, 
Fox News has recently been sued by companies that make voting machines on the grounds that in purveying this idea, we've systematically flipped over a lot of Republican votes into Democratic votes. You're telling us that we are, you know, our machines are dishonest. And that's very interesting analogy, you know, because I, I can't insult you publicly and get away with it without you're getting back at me, right? But I can destroy the entire atmosphere of the society with impunity at the moment, right? <laughs> so we need to have some way of bringing some of that, if you like, law. I'm speaking to a lawyer, so probably this is totally nonsense. But the law concerned with with uh, defamation, with uh, calumny, and, and whatever the word is, in defamation. Right? Defamation. Okay, you have to bring the law concerned with defamation somewhere near a law which is interested in truth-telling, not uh, having in, indefinite lies spewed to the public and so on. Some way of, of bringing this together. And I know there are all sorts of problems here, and I'm sure that you're much better at solving them than I am. But this is another, this is, this is, it's a two-part, it's a two-sided development, a political yeah. organization, and doing something to cure the information split or truth, the, the reality split that people are living in, in our world today. Charles, thank you. I, I can't thank you enough for this entire conversation. I, I really regret that we're out of time. I, I could go on all day with uh, my curiosity um, and know how much everybody who's listening would benefit from, from your judgments on them. Uh, but uh, these, uh, these minutes have been precious and I'm very, very grateful for your time here uh, with us. Oh, thank, thank you, you. so much. Yeah. Um, Susan, I'll turn it back over to you just to close things here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Professor Carozza and to Professor Taylor. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter. 